Yeah, I think it's almost the direct result, right? We it's hard to kind of see maybe the layers behind things, but if we see some one thing causes something, we automatically assume it's that one thing. So if we eat, you know, a carbohydrate containing food and it spikes our blood sugar, we're like, hey, yeah, it's got to be the carbs, right? That's that's the that's the the one thing that makes sense. But you know, if if you haven't maybe studied physiology or maybe don't understand those those basics to carbohydrate metabolism, what might disrupt that? You know, you won't understand that there might be some background layers to that. Like we mentioned so far, emotional stress can certainly disrupt insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, too much fat in the diet can cause insulin resistance, right? So, you know, it, it's all these sorts of layers behind that, that, um, you know, not many people maybe take into account. They just see that direct correlation between carbohydrates and blood sugar spiking. And we assume it's the carbohydrates, but often, you know, taking a look at what's behind the scenes can be helpful and, uh, you know, basically improving your tolerance to them. Welcome to the Weight Loss for Women podcast, a place where we share everything you need to know about restoring your metabolism so you can eat more, train less, and lose weight in a healthy and sustainable way. I'm Kitty Bloomfield, co-founder of New Strength and Saturay, creator of pro-metabolic food supplements and skincare, and super excited to announce that we will have a launch date for the skincare in the next few weeks, but it should be by the end of this month, which is super, super, super exciting. I know I've been saying that probably for the last two and a half bloody years. But anyway, today I have Isaac Pullman on the podcast and he's just such a wealth of information and a super nice guy, lives in the States and he's actually a diabetic and a dietitian um, that works with diabetics. And I just wanted to get him on to talk more about sugar and diabetes and, you know, break down some of the, I guess, misconceptions that sugar causes diabetes. And there's a lot more to it than that. And you'd be surprised that what what does he eat? He eats a lot of fruit. Um, You know, he actually has sugar in his diet. So in this episode, we chat about a bit more about his um, story and background, how he found pre-metabolic eating, the differences between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, how stress contributes to diabetes and poor health, um, why people think that sugar causes diabetes, how polyunsaturated fats actually interfere with carb and sugar metabolism by your cells, what sort of foods that he recommends to his diabetic clients, um, how potassium is super beneficial for diabetics and it's beneficial for everyone, Um, the importance of balancing meals. We talk a bit about salt and its benefits. Um, And then Isaac talks about how much insulin he takes and what improvements he's seen in his health and diabetes since um, embarking on pro-metabolic eating. So, guys, as always, um, please rate and review this episode. So if you've given us a rating and a review before, you can do it as many times as you like. Um, And for extra brownie points and the chance to win a tub of Saturay collagen, uh, take a screenshot of the episode, share it on Instagram stories, tag me and just share your biggest takeaways. And then each month I pick someone from those that have shared and we send you out a tub of Saturay premium collagen. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And I think it'll really be an eye-opener for a lot of people. Hi, Isaac. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, that, thanks so much for the invite, Kitty. It's great to be here. 
Well, I've been dying to get you on because I follow you on Instagram and you are a type one diabetic and I see you. Oh, sorry. Our dogs, my dogs are in here. It's pissing down rain, everyone. The dogs are inside going crazy. They haven't been for their walk, but um, I follow Isaac on Instagram. If you don't follow him, you should follow him. I'll put all his details in the show notes, but he is a type one diabetic. Henry, shush, buddy. Sorry. Henry, shh. Our little new sausage dog Henry. He's a bit barky. Um, and yeah, he's a type one diabetic, but yet he eats fruit and he eats sugar and he had all these health issues prior to finding the whole pro-metabolic eating. And um, you know, he pretty much sort of, I guess, does the opposite of what diabetics are taught that they should do to manage their diabetes. And I just think he's got such an amazing story and he helps a lot of people with um similar issues. So that's why I really wanted to get him on because I feel like there is just so much information out there like people don't really understand like they think that sugar causes diabetes that's what they think which is not true (laughs) um so I think yeah this I just wanted to get you on and tell your story and talk more about you know what you do with your clients so maybe um Isaac lives in Chicago which is cool so maybe start with you know tell us more about your story and your background and you know how you found this eating and all the experience all the issues you're experiencing prior to this yeah, yeah, absolutely. So originally from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is very much up north near Canada, if you the listeners aren't familiar, and very rural area, which is very much different from where I am now and being in the Chicagoland area. But um, yeah, I've spent 18 years of my, uh, the first part of my life up there. And it's where I encountered most of my uh, health issues starting in high school. Um, you know, it just uh, became very sick, very chronically fatigued, lost a bunch of weight. And at that time I was, you know, really like rail skinny and following Can I just all ask, the- Sorry, Isaac, sorry, one yeah. question. Were you born a type one diabetic or did you develop it later in life? I developed it later, like early mm-hmm. on in college, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit later than maybe most people might be diagnosed, but, mm-hmm. um, but yes, uh, yeah, around early college. So, um, but initially it was kind of uh, different things leading up to the, the type one diabetes diagnosis. I, in high school was chronic fatigue and gastroparesis, which if you're not familiar, it's like the slow emptying of the stomach, which very much has to do with things related to metabolism. Um, and then as I got into college, you know, I was a, a collegiate athlete actually, and uh, played soccer and uh, was really forced to quit because of a lot of these symptoms I was experiencing, particularly the fatigue and just a bunch of food sensitivities and hormonal imbalances. I mean, you name it, I, I had it and didn't really find a lot of solutions from doctors, unfortunately. And, you know, they were well-meaning folks and, you know, try to do their best, but, you know, just, I didn't see very much results there. And by that time I was just like, Hey, I'm, I'm sick of not seeing results. I got to look into this myself. And that's what really inspired me to you know, do my own research and, you know, find uh, this metabolism niches or pro metabolic space as people have known it to become. And, you know, follow people like, uh, you know, Ray Pete and, you know, Josh Rubin and people like yourself. So, um, you know, that's where it got started for me. And I think the motivation was just not seeing the results that I would like to, and just wanting to take control of it myself. Mm, mm, amazing. Amazing. So you were diagnosed, did you say with 19? Uh, around, around, uh, twenties, like 22. 20. You, okay, cool. You know. And then, so how many years was it until you found the pro-metabolic eating? So you lived with this type one diabetes for how long, how many years before you found this? Yeah. Yeah. So it was actually kind of at the point I, I found pro-metabolic eating oh. at the point where oh, I was kind of diagnosed. Yep. Ah, yep. Wow, so wow, wow. that's where I really got into it. 
and um, was one of the primary motivations. And I, I knew just even before this, I was experimenting with you know low carb eating and just was going down all sorts of different things that they commonly recommend. And it just wasn't seeing results because I was pursuing that for the hormonal imbalances and the mm-hmm. fatigue. And, you know, we're, we're, they're looking at the lens of, oh, carbs are bad, sugar is bad, so to speak. So cutting them all out of your diet. Yeah, yeah. And I only did it for a short period of time, but I, uh, I definitely experienced the uh, negative side effects that most people do. So um, yeah, wow. And I guess you're just probably doing what the doctors told you to do and what the health professionals told you. Yep, exactly. And, and I, I think a lot of doctors these days are very much against carbs, or at least from what I've experienced myself. And they're early on that ketogenic carnivore, low carb diet kick. And maybe they still are, but that was just my experience. You know, they, they want you to get rid of carbs and carbs are the devil. And that's the reason why you're having all these symptoms. <laughs> just crazy, isn't it? Just hold one second. I'm going to put this bloody dog on the bed so he stops. <laughs> no worries. He can't jump up and can't jump up yet and mix them on the bloody bed. So there we go. That'll, I shouldn't have let them in. Anyway, like bloody kids they are. So, um, okay, cool. And maybe just for someone, for the, all the, not the viewers, say the listeners who aren't familiar, what what is a type 1 diabetic? What is a two, type 2 diabetic? Like what does that actually mean? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the difference has to do with the origin. So with type one, it's autoimmune origin, it has to, it relates to the immune system. And it tends to occur when, you know, those of us that are a little bit younger, it's, it's known as like juvenile diabetes, but folks and clients that I get, they're diagnosed like at myself in their, their twenties. My grandmother was diagnosed when she was 18. Mm -hmm. So it can really just depend, but the primary difference has to do with kind of the immune system origin, um, with that for folks with type one diabetes, and it's primarily diagnosed with both the A1C, so hemoglobin A1C test, blood sugar test. And then the key part of this is antibody. So it's known as the GAD65 antibody that uh, is, is typically positive or heightened in that case that can really tell the difference between type one and type two. Now, you know, with type two, it primarily has to do with something called insulin resistance, which is just the resistance to that insulin hormone. I, I call it the mailman because it brings in the carbs from the bloodstream to the cells. It, it delivers it. So it, it's kind of that pathway that gets a, a little bit disrupted for those with type two. They can still produce insulin, unlike someone with type one diabetes, but they're just resistant to it. And that's primarily where their blood sugar issues uh tend to lie. So was it, so just correct me if I'm wrong. So my understanding is that, so the pancreas in type one diabetes doesn't make insulin. So this, like this autoimmune condition there, is it attacking the pancreas, those cells? So they no longer can um, make insulin. Correct. Correct. Yep. So no longer can make insulin. The immune system is kind of, like you said, taking out those uh, dysfunctional cells. And as a result, you have to supplement insulin um, via injection or insulin pump. So, yeah, yep. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I've like Emma and I've talked about this a lot. You know, Emma, the nutrition coach, my business partner, yep. Saturday, she said that she's Ray has actually worked with people who've reversed type one diabetes. Have you ever seen that? 
Yeah, I, I have actually emailed back and forth with Ray a few times, and uh, I believe his dad was actually, uh, I, I can't remember exactly, it might have been his dad, but he, I, I think he corrected it with something like Brewer's Yeast or something like that. Wow. Um, so I have I have heard of it before. Um, I'm not sure of the viability of that today or just being on yeah. insulin for a while, but I mean, it, it definitely sparks, it sparks my curiosity for sure, and I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. So, so I wonder, this is just me, my brain think ticking over because obviously I don't have an in-depth understanding like you do of it, but mm-hmm. if the body, if it's an autoimmune condition and their body's attacking, so the beta, their beta cells, is that what they're called? The beta cells? Yep. So it's, they actually are gone, I assume. Like once they're destroyed, they're destroyed. And I wonder if the body, like, you know, like, I, I mean, we've seen with clients in our program, like I know it's not the same, but like Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease and they've gone in um, rheumatoid arthritis and they've been in our program for years it's in remission. They're off all their medication. So I wonder if type one diabetes, if it's like what you've got, it, the same thing could happen and the beta cells could actually regenerate. I wonder if that's mm-hmm. possible once mm-hmm. the autoimmune condition is resolved. Right, right. Absolutely. I'd be curious around that as well. I think with type 1 diabetes or any autoimmune condition in general, we we think of it as this immune system has gone uh, all wrong and it's immune system's fault, but it's really taking out those dysfunctional cells. It's doing its job. You know, the body doesn't all of a sudden go, um, you know, haywire for no reason, right? So. You know, I, I I would imagine, you know, if, if we're seeing you know, with your clients, seeing improvements with Hashimoto's or other autoimmune yeah. conditions, I would imagine it would be possible for someone with type 1 diabetes. Yeah. I just personally haven't seen it as of yet. I mean, I'm yeah. certainly open to it. And I've seen research on, you know, yeah. things like beta cell regeneration, but, you yeah. know, I haven't quite seen it in the, the life or the anecdotal form, so... Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, I guess, cause I just interviewed Josh on the podcast and they're very much, everything comes back to stress. So these autoimmune conditions, right. It sounds like your body just gone through so much stress different in different ways that your body just becomes dysfunctional. Right. And then it presents itself in some form of autoimmune condition, which totally makes sense. Cause when like all the clients that we work with, the ones that have come in that have seen huge improvements, like they body, like they've just done so much stressful things to themselves over the years like excessive drinking, starving themselves, eating a heap of polyunsaturated fats, a lot of emotional stress, work stress, and then they flog themselves with exercise. So it's like the body is just going, I can't deal with this anymore, which makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And if I think back to when I was prior to my diagnosis, that's exactly what I was coming from. I was super stressed. I was in school. I had a job. I was participating in all these entrepreneurship competitions. It just, I was like, there's so much stress and my diet wasn't the best. I wasn't so much into this pro-metabolic style of eating that was ultimately supportive. I was eating, you know, a lot of unsaturated fats. Growing up, I had access to a lot of like fortified, uh, rich iron foods. So if you kind of, if I put the pieces back together, you can kind of see how things start to fit together there yeah yeah it's crazy hey and like all of the things I mean we would have when I was a kid I'm just trying to think about the cereals that we ate too like we probably would have eaten like wheat bix I don't know if probably has iron in it you know like the same sort of thing like those iron fortified foods but maybe you know I think back to our diet like our mum and dad they didn't have heaps of money so it's pretty like they just used to eat basic meat potatoes vegetables fruits we drank a lot of milk because it was cheap may not have been the highest of high qualities, but you know, like it, we weren't eating a ton of fortified cereals and heaps and heaps of pufas. So yeah, it's really, it is interesting. Hey, and like the whole stress, it can just come from so many, it's not just the food, 
you know, like say the emotional stress, like the stress that you're under, that you put yourself under at uni, which is, yeah, it's pretty, um, it's pretty amazing. It, I think yeah. it's really fascinating um, and how you can actually turn things around. So anyway, sorry, we've sort of got a bit, bit off topic. So, um, okay. So can you talk about um, why do people think like sugar causes diabetes? Cause it's not like in type two diabetes, it's the body's inability to get the sugar into the cell. Like we did this great podcast with Georgie. So why is it that people have got this misconception that they think that it's the sugar that causes it? Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah. 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 I think it's almost the direct result, right? We It's hard to kind of see maybe the layers behind things, but if we see some one thing causes something, we automatically assume it's that one thing. So if we mm-hmm. eat, you know, a carbohydrate containing food and it spikes our blood sugar, we're like, Hey, yeah, it's gotta be the carbs, right? That's, that's the, that's the, the one thing that makes sense. But you know, if, if you haven't maybe studied physiology or maybe don't understand those, those basics to carbohydrate metabolism, what might disrupt that, you know, you won't understand that there might be some background layers to that. Like we mentioned so far, emotional stress can certainly disrupt insulin sensitivity, um, you know, too much fat in the diet can cause insulin resistance, right? So, you know, it, it's all these sorts of layers behind that, that, um, you know, not many people maybe take into account, they just see that direct correlation between carbohydrates and blood sugar spiking. And we assume it's the carbohydrates, but often, you know, taking a look at what's behind the scenes can be helpful. And, uh, you know, basically improving your tolerance to them. So would you like, cause I've got to, this is how I explain it to clients. This is how I understand it. Cause it's quite simple, but yep. like insulin is the key that unlocks the door that lets the, the glucose into the cell. And so things like cortisol, um, you know, high free fat acids actually block that lock and keep the blood sugar high. So it's not really the sugar. That's the problem. It's the cells inability to actually receive the sugar because that lock is being blocked. Like you like the cortisol, high cortisol. So you know, like people like you say, the, 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 the emotional stress. And I've experienced this myself, like with, and I've talked about this on the podcast before with all the whole trying for a baby thing. I just got myself worked up into this incredibly emotionally stressed state, doing everything right with my food, but not sleeping, peeing, getting up to pee during the night, even though everything on paper was because I was so, so wound up and emotionally stressed that my cortisol was so high. Um, you know, and I think people don't realize that it's the, this, that, that is such a huge factor. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I like to give my clients this analogy too. I really love analogies because it makes all this complicated science stuff make sense. (laughs) So if you think about if you're trying to fill like a a bucket with water, Mm -hmm. right. And you envision that as your health. And what if the bucket had holes in it, right. And you're trying to fill that, that bucket up with water. Well, you're not going to fill that bucket up very quickly, right. It's just going to all drain out. Well, you know, we have to really plug those holes first in order for us to fill up that bucket. And that's addressing the stress, right. That's plugging those holes. That's, you know, working on our diet. That's, you know, making boundaries. That's, you know, better coping stress or, or, better coping mechanisms for stressors. And that allows us to fill, fill that bucket up. But, you know, if you take things into account like nutrition, you know, that's going to help us fill that up even more because we have the, pl- the holes plugged with the, you know, the coping mechanisms for stress, and then we can actually fill that bucket up. But if we're just working on our nutrition, we're not going to be able to plug those holes. It's just going to continue to drain out. And that's kind of how I, I, I look at things from a stress perspective as well. Mm. Can you talk more about to um, like what are polyunsaturated fats and how they interfere with glucose metabolism in the cells? I think that's another 
another one that people, because, you know, like prior to finding this way, I was used to smash heaps of nuts and seeds and, you know, I used to use margarine and, you know, cook, like people cook with canola oil and they've just got all this really high um, polyunsaturated fats in their diet. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, polyunsaturated fats can certainly play a big role. And, you know, when you, when you look at kind of the scientific background, they're, you know, unstable fats, and they have this double bond that's reactive. And when you put that inside of the body, and then the body is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm not sure what that is in, in yeah, Celsius. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we're, we're high temperature, right? And, and we have oxygen, we have heat, and, and you know, there's light that's interacting with uh, those food products products, maybe even before we eat them. So those are all, you know, uh, variables to take into account, because those variables, uh, you know, increase the breakdown of those fats, so they make them unstable. And when they're unstable, they can contribute to things like inflammation. And we know inflammation contributes to insulin resistance. And we know insulin resistance contributes to high blood sugars. So that can be kind of this background piece, especially for those with, you know, type more of the type two diabetes, that um, it's not, again, it's not necessarily the carbs, but it could be this background variable. And, you know, you have a lot of stored you know, PUFAs away, or you're, you're eating a lot of PUFAs that could be disrupting your ability to actually tolerate those carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So I guess, could you um, talk about, you know, like, say, if you are experienced, like type one or type two diabetes, some of the things that you do with your clients? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So we really work on creating awareness first and foremost. I think that's the the first step in, in understanding, hey, what is the challenge here? What is the problem? And, and what's maybe the biggest step that we can take that's going to produce 80% of your results, right? It's that 80-20 principle, if you've, you've heard of that mm-hmm. before. So we look to, you know, first create awareness. And I do that through food logging. And I know, you know, most of my clients don't like that, you know, it's not a necessarily a fun process, but it does give you such valuable insights into what you're doing and what might be contributing to that. And I not only look at blood sugar because, you know, uh, it, I view health as this holistic thing. It's not, it's not just blood sugar. It's not just nutrition. It's not just stress, it's not just sleep. It's this entire thing. So I, I look at biofeedback as well. So mm-hmm. things like energy, things like digestion, stress, sleep, etc. So we look at those things to make sure everything is kind of aligned. And maybe we look at to, to get started the lowest hanging fruit. So the worst of those, so say someone is really having some energy issues, then that's the variable that we, we address first. And oftentimes by taking care of that lowest hanging fruit, maybe we take care of a few other of those as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that first step, lowest hanging fruit, creating that awareness around where they might need some more support and, you know, kind of working towards that. So that's, that's really the first step of what I work with, with clients where they have type one, type two, or any kind of like blood sugar issue. Mm. And what sort of foods do you recommend they eat? Cause I think, you know, like I get a lot of questions saying, oh, you know, this interesting, this lady messaged me one day and she said, kitty, you know, I can't remember the exact words, but like, oh, I've just spoken to my doctor and, you know, I've really got this, inib- I'm going through menopause and inability to lose weight. And I've got type two diabetes or insulin resistance. So my doctor's really said, you know, like, cut out the, the fruit and the sugar and the carbs. So, you know, I'm doing that and it's working. And so I think it's really something you should talk to your clients about that, <laughs> you know, that they could do. So could you talk about like, you know, fruits and sugars and why you would get them? Because I think people also think like, oh, fructose is bad. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this perception out there that, uh, you know, sugars and, and fructose, and that's something that you want to avoid, because I, I don't know, I think there's this perception that we group sugar all into one category and mm-hmm. label it all as bad when, you know, there's, you know, some big differences between something like high fructose corn syrup and something like a sweet potato or regular potato, you know, or fruit, for example, they're, they're big differences. I mean, it's huge. There's, there's vitamins, there's minerals, there's, uh, you know, fiber, it's in a whole food package. You know, there's, there's so many differences. And I think that's, that's the issue. We just, we understand that, you know, carbs might break down into sugar and we think that's all the same thing, but it's very different depending on the carb that you're, you're looking at. And, you know, with things like fruits, you know, we, we understand, Hey, they can change sugar. So they're going to spike up my blood sugar, right? That's the assumption that we make. But you know, the, the, the thing that I've noticed the most is for, for those of us with diabetes is that as one of the more supportive carbs, because it contains fructose, it contains fiber. And it's, it's something that is, you know, slow releasing, it's actually not going to spike up your blood sugar. But, you know, if it is, you know, maybe that's looking at the other external variables, like we talked about earlier, you know, the PUFAs, the emotional stress, you know, et cetera. So that's, again, that's looking at the background, but you know, when it comes to fruits, they have, you know, that fructose, which it can be absorbed independently of insulin, right? And we know someone with type one or type two diabetes, that's the primary issue. We either have an insulin deficiency, or we have insulin resistance. And that's the pathway that's disrupted. But fructose can kind of move around that it's absorbed independently of, of that pathway. And uh, therefore, it's, it's, it's uh, absorbed more efficiently than something like, uh, you know, glucose, for example. So that's why it can be a little bit more supportive for those of us that do have some blood sugar challenges. And do you think it's also important, actually, quick question back to the fruit, can you talk quickly about potassium, you know, because like orange juice fruits are high in potassium and why that's beneficial too? Yep. Yep. Potassium is, is a crucial one. It uh, plays a huge role in, in carbohydrate metabolism. And I, I see as, as clients aren't getting as much potassium in their blood sugar does tend to rise up. So any kind of electrolyte like potassium, sodium, magnesium are such huge players. And that's not, um, you know, quite understood to its full extent or emphasized. Because if you look at the requirements for potassium, it's like 4,700 milligrams that's required daily. And I don't know many people that are reaching that if they're not really putting a great deal of effort into their diets or emphasizing things like fruits. And if you're not taking in fruits, you're probably not going to, or carbs in general, right? You're mm-hmm. probably not going to maybe, you know, reach that, that uh, degree of potassium. And that's another huge player that uh, comes into play, not only for those of us with type one, but type two or any sort of blood sugar challenge. So potassium is just a huge one that just, um, I don't think gets enough attention that it deserves. And how I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, again, this is a simple understanding, but it helps to like push the glucose into the cell like insulin. So it has like an insulin response. So obviously having the fructose and the potassium in the fruit or the juice is really going to be beneficial. Yep. It, it's kind of like an insulin. Think about it like an insulin like yeah. properties, basically yep. kind of yep, yep, yep. kicks it, kicks it in there. And I think Ray Pete almost had that a similar quote like that insulin like properties, but that's yeah. exactly what it is. It helps kind of regulate uh, blood sugar in a way that insulin would do. Um, but uh, you know, if you have enough potassium, you know, it's, it's very much more efficient. And, you know, when you're, if you're someone like type one and you're mm-hmm. taking overdosing on insulin, that can in, in itself create insulin resistance, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important to get those nutrients in that way versus just supplementing with a ton of insulin. Mm-mm. And um, 
Can you talk a little bit about why it's important to balance your meals? So having a good balance of protein, carbs, and fat. Yep. Yep. And this is crucial. Almost after we go back to the step of working with people, we create that awareness. And then typically there's some sort of imbalance with the diet, you know, and that can be a great place to start, not only in helping to achieve blood sugar balance, but just helping with the energy level, that sustained energy level. So typically what I see most commonly are, are people are, you know, might be either under eating or overeating carbs or uh, under eating protein and then mm. overeating, overeating fat. Typically, those are the common trends that I, I like to see. Yeah, exactly the same. When they start yep. to track, we're like, they're like, whoa, I'm just not eating much protein at all. So eating too much fat. Yeah, exactly the yep. same. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, you know, just by looking at that, again, we know high fat diets disrupt insulin signaling. So if we kind of back off a little bit on that, up the protein a little bit, that can inherently improve, you know, how you feel um, and the blood sugars, because if, if when blood sugar is in balance, we just feel better, you know, energy wise, all the biofeedback that we talk about. So that's what I would look at first. And particularly for those folks that, um, you know, have diabetes looking at the density of the meal. So for example, um, and, and this might differ just based on the clientele that you're working with, but something like orange juice versus something like an orange, the mm. orange is going to be a little bit more dense, hold you over for a little bit longer. So those are the kind of foods that I'd recommend for those of us with diabetes, a little bit more dense rather than something like quick absorbing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, you know, proteins, obviously maybe less collagen, more of the steak and seafood and hamburger and, you know, all, all, all that good stuff. So that's mm. what I would look at, not only the balance, but the density of that, that food. Mm-hmm. And what about salt? That's what I see a lot with our clients is they're not, that they're just of this bit phobia about salt. Can you talk more about salt and why it's beneficial? Yeah, yeah, there is a phobia. Salt and carbs, I think, could be its own own category. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I think it is a, a big um, you know concern because it's it's so it, it's in the media, right? We we uh, especially when it comes to blood sugar, those of us that have blood sugar or blood pressure concerns rather, and we're we're told to stay away from salt and restrict it to whatever it is, like twenty three hundred milligrams or something like that. And you know, the, the thing is that you know blood pressure is there's so many variables that go into it like emotional stress and sodium plays, you know, maybe a minor role in that, but nothing, nothing extremely major, especially when your minerals are in a balanced place. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to sodium, there's actually a ton of research on it that has been shown to decrease insulin resistance. So it can play a huge role in maintaining that blood sugar stability as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So what I, typically recommend for clients is just salt their food to taste. So mm-hmm. even things like fruit, I, or I, I put salt on my fruit Same. in the morning just, on my orange. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Keep it going, just helps keep going. it. It just helps it to yeah. taste better in my opinion too. And it's a way to get in some a- extra minerals there and ultimately support, uh, you know, your health and metabolism as well. So I, I think salt is such a, a key piece along with the potassium that we mentioned along with those, that magnesium, those are really the foundational minerals that I find is really helpful when creating that foundation for blood sugar stability. Mm, it's funny, isn't it? Like Craig and I often talk about this, like, you know, when you sort of stumble into this pro-metallic world and you start, you just like, this is just all the food that's just delicious too. You know, like for dinner last night, we had like this yummy crispy skin barramundi with potatoes cooked in ghee, heaps of salt. I always just, cause obviously I haven't got diabetes or any sort of blood sugar issues. I drink a lot of juice. Like I just love orange juice. Like I just, mm. and I have to have 
And I've been at the moment having a mix of orange juice, watermelon, mint, and strawberry juice. And it is, I have it for dinner with my dinner. I'm just like, oh, this is so amazing. And then I have ice cream after, you know, with casein. And it's just really delicious. Like your mouth, I just, I don't know, maybe people might say that their mouth waters for this, but your mouth doesn't water for raw broccoli. Okay. It waters for like a delicious juicy steak with potato and butter and like you say like how good is fresh orange and oranges are so cheap i don't know in the u.s but like oranges are pretty much available in australia all year round and they're really affordable yeah yeah um here they're a little bit more expensive in my experience but um i love oranges (laughs) i'm a i'm an orange sucker for sure um but uh yeah I, i think going back to your point i think it's so interesting that that connection that the delicious foods are often the most supportive and it's funny how that works and how maybe the mainstream media kind of strays away from that and like don't eat anything delicious and yeah i know the bland foods and (laughs) And boring, plain. It's interesting, actually, with this lady in our program, she's not in it anymore, but she was in it for a few years, type 1 diabetic. I think she was diagnosed at four from memory. And um, I remember when I interviewed her on our, like, Sugar Babe show, and she was just saying how the most recent blood test she did with her doctor, so she would do bloods every, I don't know how, how often, but the doctor was like, oh, whatever you're doing, like, just keep doing it. Your bloods are the best they've ever been. And she said she was us- using less insulin, um and just like all the things that you talked about experience like more energy better sleep you know better balanced hormones um what's your experience been with that like how does it work with the insulin and how often you take it can you maybe talk a bit more about that yeah yeah first of all that's amazing that she see all that those good results and uh you know i've have similar results as well like like i mentioned i don't view health as just blood sugar i view it as blood sugar and you know all the biofeedback the energy digestion mood sleep you know etc and i've seen such improvements in even myself just working through that but also the the clients that i I do work with so you know i I think it's it's such an important piece and you know when i when i take insulin I, i take it you know each meal time. So uh, right before the meal, I'll check my blood sugar. I have something called a Dexcom. I'm not sure if listeners are familiar with that, but it's it's basically like this continuous glucose monitor that keeps track of your blood sugar 24 hours of the day. So you can wow. literally pull up your phone and be like, oh, my blood sugar says 108. Yeah. For example. So yeah. it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool way to monitor it. But uh, yeah, so I kind of check that out, see where it's at and uh, give myself an insulin injection based on the amount of carbs that I'm taking. So I typically have about four meals slash snacks a day and mm-hmm. do that four times a day. And then at night, I'll take what's called my long acting insulin, which just kind of carries you over through the night. Mm-hmm. So about five, five injections per day. And, you know, each person that'll vary a little bit depending on their specific regimen. But, um, you know, that's kind of typically my routine, check the blood sugar, uh, mm. take the insulin, wait a little bit of time for that to act and, and get into my body and then, uh, have my meal. So. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it is so amazing. And I just, I really hope that this lots of people like especially type one and type two diabetics will listen to this um i really think you know like they should check you out and and you know like work with you because obviously you're a type one diabetic yourself so you've been through it you've lived it you've had all these health um concerns you've worked with clients you've got proven results and i really think obviously like this is a little bit Oh, I'm trying to think of the right words to articulate it, but, you know, having someone to guide you through it that's done it before, especially when you've got type one diabetes, it's not like you're just a bit tired and you've got low energy. You know, I think it's probably, I mean, you have, what's some success story? Tell us about some, um, 
success stories with your clients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I work with a, a wide range of uh, audiences. I work with type ones. And, and that's the one of the first things I say to me, like, wow, you know, you've you've been through it, you've been through that diagnosis stage and know kind of what it's all about and lowered your A1C while eating carbohydrates. And I want to be a part of that. So, uh, you know, I certainly can, uh, they can relate to that experience. And I, I find that to be valuable when working, especially with those folks. But I work with, uh, you know, those with type two, insulin resistance, PCOS, uh, hypoglycemia as well. So, um, you know, work with kind of all different ranges, but you know, when it comes down to it, you know, when you're supporting the person and supporting, you know, their blood sugar and biofeedback, you know, we, I've you know, really seen some great results with clients um, from no matter what spectrum of the blood sugar um, realm that they fall in. So you know, that's including type one, type two, uh, you know, prediabetes, insulin resistance, et cetera. So, and I've seen a lot of people reduce their A1Cs. I've seen a lot of people uh, reduce their fasting blood sugars, which tends to be, you know, a huge issue. If you think about things like the dawn phenomenon, um, you know, that morning blood sugar rising on people. So seeing good results with that. But more, more importantly, I think the thing that I really take pride in is the fact that they're not just improving their blood sugars, but they're improving how they feel. So it's just this holistic experience, you know, the biofeedback that it's not that they're restricting their food intake based on out of fear of, oh, this is going to spike my blood sugar. They're doing it in a supportive way that's going to support their blood sugar, but also their health as a whole. And that's what I think I take the, the most pride in. Mm, so, so good. Look, is there anything else you want to add that I haven't any questions you think I haven't asked you things we haven't covered that need to be covered? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think you hit on a variety of the ones that I thought were important, particularly the carbs. I, I think, uh, you know, the, any kind of electrolytes were huge, um, you know, biofeedback, meal density. So I, I think we hit on a good amount of the things that I thought were really key. So, awesome. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for the invite, Kitty. This was, uh, was just really fun chopping it up with you. And I'll, um, for everyone who's listening, I'll pop um, Isaac's Instagram handle below so you can go there and click on his um, link tree and you can see all of the options that he has to work with him. Um, and yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. And um, maybe we'll have you on again soon. Yeah, I'd love it. Love to come thanks. back anytime. Bye. Bye.